You would open your Bibles again to Romans 12. Again, I don't know who the regulars are here. I did take a I did take a directory with me last week and tried to get match faces and stuff like that. But I do want to say this, um, I, and I know my wife would agree with me. Uh, there's never a mo- there's, has been no moment. This is my fifth Sunday here. There's never been a moment in the service where I thought, you know what I mean? Like I've been in lots of church services where it becomes irreverent or goofy. And and you can be reverent and, and cheerful, and I, I commend you for that, and may you not lose it. And I also very much appreciate how gospel-centered you are, and uh, everything's rooted in the gospel. And so uh, may you stay that course and not ever leave that course. Um, and may the elders continue in that, in that path and leading you. I'm always afraid where to set this down because I'm afraid I'm going to bat it off sometime. But hopefully I'll be stick man here and not move too much. Okay, Romans 12. And Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And then about 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And he gave those gifts to his people uh, so that they could help one another on this journey through life before we go to glory and also to spread his kingdom. And so Paul is very much concerned in this section as we are living sacrifices to God that we function well in the body of Christ with each other. Now, later he's going to go to how we should function in the world, those Principles obviously obviously apply to the church as well, but he's concerned of how we function within a local body. And that's what you find here in these verses, verses 3 through 8. Let me read them again. Romans uh, Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you now to meet with us through your word as you have already met with us in the singing and the testimonies and the prayers. We pray that you would continue to meet with us and help us, Lord, uh, as we continue uh, our pilgrimage through this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we, saw, we have seen previously that as we function in the body of Christ, 
We need to be careful that we're not high-minded. We need to repent of any high-mindedness. And instead of being high-minded, we need to pursue sober-mindedness. And that means that every Christian needs to assess himself. How, how does he fit into the body of Christ? And obviously he does that with the help of others, too, confirming what gifts they believe that that person has. And then we need to accept the place that God has given to us. That doesn't mean that we don't, as they say, we don't push the envelope and try to discover do I have abilities in certain areas or whatever? But we accept the place that Christ has placed us in his body and then and serve gladly in that. So picking up with that, that means that we recognize that in a body, a local body, there are various gifts. Not everybody has the same gifts. And Paul uses that classic illustration here of the human body to, to illustrate that. That there's a diversity in a human body, but there's a unity, and it's for, for the purpose of life. So it's all necessary uh, to make up one harmonious body. Now, one thing that ought to become evident here is that the, the parts of the body are not interchangeable. Um, and we shouldn't expect them to be. We shouldn't desire them to be. Uh, that means that we shouldn't look down on other people if they don't have certain gifts and then they really don't have the ability to do something. It's happened many times in the history of local churches where some young man seems promising and so they give him opportunities to begin to teach a Sunday school class and then eventually they put him into a pulpit just to give him a chance to experience all of that. And he bombs and he continues to bomb and he discovers that's not his place. I heard, uh, again, Dr. Lloyd-Jones tell a story in, about how there was a young man in, in England who was a, a tremendous chef, but he was a dedicated believer, too. So people said, well, you ought to be in the ministry. So he started going to school, and Lloyd-Jones said he was absolutely miserable in doing that. He didn't belong there. And he went to see Dr. Lloyd-Jones after service, and he said, go back to your cooking. And he was happy. He served, he served faithfully in the church. So we need to be careful that we don't look down on others because they don't do the things that we thought they should be able to do or what we wanted them to do. The parts are not interchangeable. Now, you'll notice how he says that in verses 4, 5, and part of verse 6. He says in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, or parts, that's the word. 5a says, So we, though many one body, so we're many. And then 6a, having diffs, gifts that differ, etc., etc. So we need to be careful in a local church that we, we, we don't get into that, that problem where there's a need, there's a, there's, a, there's a hole, and we just start plugging it with anybody just to, just to fill the hole. Uh, the church that I came to in Poland, they had that mentality not to do that. You know, we talked about that a lot when I first came there. They said that yeah, there are different areas that need to be filled, but we don't just fill those spots with people just to have them filled. If they don't belong there, they shouldn't be there. Now, when we talk about diversity in the body, what we don't mean is, is that we can all be doing our own thing. You know what they say today. You know, I have my truth. You have your truth. We can live by different standards, have different doctrines. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's, that's a worldly idea. What is the scriptural Diversity. Well, verse, tell, verse 4 tells us. It says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. The word is the word practice. We don't have the same practice. 
So your God-given individual gifts are much needed. And that's a good kind of individualism, if I can put it that way. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in the bulletin here, uh, you had 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. But just three of those verses say this. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So that's the diversity, different functions, same God behind it all. So we all know that it's a bad thing when we try to plug people into places where they don't belong. Go, go back to Paul's uh, analogy here of the human body. Have you ever tried to swallow water down your windpipe? It just isn't made for that, is it? Or have you ever tried to kick a ball with your nose? Doesn't work. You ever tried to bob for apples? I don't know if they do that anymore or not. Hands work a lot better than grabbing that apple, but you're not allowed to do that. Your teeth aren't so good at picking up the, the apple. God has given a diversity in order to create an interdependence. So as verse 6 says, we have gifts differing, not interchangeable. You don't go into an auto parts store and say, go to the counter and say, yes, I need a part. Well, what part do you need? Oh, any part, any part will do. No, because the parts aren't interchangeable. You don't get a muffler when you need brakes. That won't work. Okay? So there's a point, there's a purpose for this diversity in the body, and it's namely so that we can function help as a healthy body functions. We can have unity. We can glorify Christ. We can promote the work of Christ, a body that functions for the glory of God, not diversity for diversity's sake. No, not so that we can all be doing our own thing and not be interconnected and feel validated. Uh, if you've been in any kind of organization outside the church, whether it's the military, whatever, I know in the military what was drummed into our heads was this, the mission, the mission, the mission. So in the Air Force branch, you know, the big shots are the pilots. But everything else matters tremendously. The mechanics matter. The people who fuel the plane, the cooks who cook food so that the pilots can be healthy. Everybody matters. And you have to be willing to be, if, if God calls you to this, to be a little cog in a great big wheel and not want to be, to mix metaphors, the big fish in the pond, in the, in the little pond. Um, so we need to keep the big picture in view. Our gifts are for the body, not for self. First Corinthians 12:7 says they are for the common good. Uh, if you notice verse 5, it also says that we're to be one another oriented. And again, I'm getting that impression from the things you say here. Now, I don't know if you're just on your best behavior because I'm a stranger or what. I know that uh, I heard George Harrison say one time in an interview when they were getting to the end of the time together, the Beatles in the late 60s, early 70s. They brought Billy Preston in to play the organ so I can let it be. You can hear that organ. That's Billy Preston. But they said when they brought him in, he was he was always upbeat and cheerful. And I can't repeat everything that George Harrison said, but he said they had been before he came in. They were sniping amongst each other. The four Beatles were. But when Billy came in, he says we always were on our best behavior. So I don't know if you're doing that or not, but uh, but I get the impression that you have this idea, this, this ethic, this ethos of being one another oriented. So verse 5 says, and individually members of one another. That's very hard for independent Americans to think that way, that we belong to each other. Uh, 
But there's this spiritual union among believers. We're not just an organization. We're an organism. We're individuals. We're unique. But we're not to be individualistic or lone rangers. Not to be aloof. Uh, and again, I've got the advantage, and I'm finding this out. When I was in my church for so many years, I knew everybody, and I knew what they were doing, what their lives were like. So I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're like, so I can say this. But I don't know if you maybe you're one of those members here that you've gotten into the habit of avoiding responsibilities. You want to slip in and slip out, and you fear someone's going to ask you to do something. And I'm sure some of you are feeling a little pressure this morning after the vacation Bible school announcements. Uh, but we're not to be aloof. Maybe you don't fit in there, by the way. So, you know, I don't know if that eases your conscience. But but selfishness has to go. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. But, you know, if you're being aloof and you're not participating in the life of the body on some level, that's what you are saying. In effect, you're saying, I have no need of you. I can come in, come out. I, I, I really honestly believe this, that um, one of the big ways that you can encourage other believers in the church is by showing up. That is such an encouragement. I can remember at times uh, you live in a vacation area, so you're always filled up, it seems, this time of year. But we often had people that would be gone, and it was just discouraging. A lot of times people would tell on themselves that they weren't even on vacation. They just decided to go do something else on a Sunday morning. They'd put it on Facebook before church was out. And it was, it was discouraging, you know. But when people show up and they want to be there, that you can encourage just by your presence um, when you've thought that through. Selfishness must go. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, And let us consider... Pay attention, observe, contemplate one another, how to stir up one another to love and good works. That means you have to be together. You have to know each other if you're really going to do that. If you're going to have your local body be what it ought to be, you have to think about the people. You have to you have to be kind of a bird dog on Sunday morning sometimes. And you have to see that person that you think, well, this, that person's got a problem. Maybe I can just come alongside them and encourage them some way and, and find out what's going on in their life. Paul says this about this man named Stephanus in his household. He says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, southern Greece today, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. Uh, do you remember the word the King James used for that word devoted? Addicted. They've addicted themselves. And the, and the idea is this. The word means they've set themselves. They've, it almost, it's sometimes used of appointing oneself to something. But what they had done was this. They made it their central business to minister to God's people. They set themselves apart to do that. And then later Paul talks about Stephanus again and some other men. He says, they have refreshed my heart. And that's what we ought to be doing to each other Sunday mornings, especially as we come together. We ought to be refreshing one another so that when we leave, we feel refreshed. We don't feel discouraged because it was just uh, a bunch of people getting together and there was no real fellowship or interaction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, again, whatever gifts you, you may have, note again, verse 6, they're due to the grace of God, solely to the grace of God. Verse 6 says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
And that should nix all pride. It should nix all envy. We have gifts differing according to the grace given to us. First Corinthians twelve eleven. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So if you're going to have a sober-minded estimate of yourself, it's essential that you recognize that what you have came from God at his good pleasure. And you don't have what you don't have according to his good pleasure. I doubt any of you today, before you came here, went up on your roof to get a head start and you flew over here. And you never will be able to fly, at least before glory, because God has not made us to fly. Do I envy the birds? No. Except for once in a while when you want to get through traffic. But God, you have to recognize that God simply did not gift you in certain ways that other people are gifted in any realm. You know, there was always the kid in class that always got A's. There was a kid that I went to high school with, and he was always getting in trouble and goofing off. But he always got good grades because he was so intelligent. God gave him intelligence. And again, I don't know you here very well at all, but some of you, no doubt, are highly gifted people. And others are less gifted. But be sober-minded about it. You highly gifted ones, don't be proud. Thank God for what he's given to you. And if you're lesser endowed, you honestly can look at other people and say, they have way more gifts than I do. They got in line two or three times, it looks like, and got their gifts. Rejoice. Rejoice in the gifts of others. Would, would you not want them to be here? Would you want this place to be all as dumb as rocks and with no ability? I don't think so. So what you want to do is you want to focus on being a good steward with what God has given to you. Uh, only time I'm going to ask you to turn someplace else this morning, go over to Exodus just for a second, to Exodus 35 and verse 30. I love this passage. This passage helps me a lot when I think about this whole area of gifts. This is in the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Exodus 35, 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he goes on to say how he also gave him the ability to teach others to be able to do the same thing. Now, if you were there and you couldn't do that, you should not be jealous. You should say, well, thank God that he gave this man and other men like him these skills. Remember, when, the, when Christ arose on high, he gave the gifts as he wanted to. So the gifts aren't interchangeable, but they're for practicing, for helping each other. And that's what takes us to verses 6 through 8. Spiritual gifts are to be put to proper use. That's verses 6 through 8. Now, he's only giving us a sample listing here of the gifts. And we know that because it differs from the list in 1 Corinthians 12. It differs from the list in Ephesians 4 and from 1 Peter chapter 4. So I don't think it's Paul's purpose in any of the passages to give all the gifts. And perhaps, this always causes controversy, perhaps... He didn't even list anywhere in the New Testament all the gifts that he's given. I don't know that. I can't prove that. 
But his point that he's making here is with these gifts, he's saying, look at the diversity in the gifts and just these. I believe it's seven gifts that he mentions here. Somebody's counting. Uh, he mentions just a sample so that he can make the point. There's a great diversity. There's a great diversity between prophesying and having the gift of what he calls ministry. Now, I will look at them briefly, but I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. Uh, let me just give you a, a couple of definitions that people have come up with for the whole idea of a spiritual gift. Uh, Smeaton, a few centuries ago, what did he know two centuries ago? Remember what uh, C.S. Lewis said. He said, beware of chronological snobbery. For some reason, we think that they didn't know anything back then. Smeaton says this, fundamentally, it is a natural or concreated, that means existing naturally when you were created by God. So let me say it again. Fundamentally, it is a natural or, a, or something existing at creation, an endowment, but called into the exercise by the Spirit for the good of the church. I think that's a good definition. You know people who aren't saved that are tremendously skilled at all kinds of things. And sometimes they become believers, and if they had a, a gift of teaching, it spills right over into that. Not always. But it oftentimes does. Uh, J.I. Packer, he gave this definition. I think it's a little bit better. It's more complete. A spiritual gift is an ability in some way to express, celebrate, display, and so communicate Christ. We are told that gifts rightly used build up Christians and churches. But only knowledge of God in Christ builds up. So each gift must be an ability from Christ to show and share in an upbuilding way. Now, again, people have tried to classify the gifts, and it's a, again, it gets into a controversial area. But uh, one professor I had at seminary, he, he classified them generally this way. There are leadership or edifying gifts. There's the sign gifts and there's service gifts. Or, again, Smeaton, he listed them as temporal and permanent. Or another way he put it was foundational, thinking of Ephesians 2, the apostles and prophets being the foundation, Christ the chief cornerstone, and then the superstructural gifts. So what he's saying there, and I agree with him, and the good thing about agreeing with someone that you don't agree with is, is that my last Sunday here is in September, so if you're mad at me, I can get out of here and, and not have to face it. But... I do believe that there were temporary gifts given to the church at its foundation. And I think this first one is an example of that prophesying. I think prophesying is the same gift of the Old Testament. It simply means to speak forth or to declare. But it means more than that. It means to re the person that was the prophet was speaking the very words of God. Uh, Tom Schreiner, Southern Seminary, he thinks the equivalent to that today is what the sister did this morning, she, she read either Psalm 14 or Psalm 51 or 53, whichever one that is, about who will, who will dwell you know, in God's holy place. He thinks that's the equivalent of that today. When you read scripture, you're doing what the prophet did in the New Testament church. They didn't have a whole Bible then. Uh, and so they were, were given direct revelation from God. It's, it's not the same thing as preaching. It has a lot of similarities to preaching, but it's not the same thing. If you disagree with me on that, that's okay. Um, and I'm not going to say what preachers often say when they say, if you want to disagree with me, it's your right to be wrong. I'm not going to say that. Uh, God can do anything, obviously. 
God can do anything. So I'm not saying we've got God in a box and he can't do that anymore. Nothing like that at all. It just seems like that's how God has worked. Uh, I've actually said more on that than I wanted to. But anyway, I do want you to notice what he says about the prophet, how he should carry out that gift. He says, in proportion to our faith or according to the proportion of the faith. That word proportion there is the exact same word where we get our word analogy. And there are many examples in in ancient Greek where it's used that way as analogy. Um, A lot of the reformers used this passage right here to say that anybody who taught scriptures needed to do it according to the analogy of faith. And what they meant by that was they must not say anything contrary to the faith once given to the saints. So let me give you a summary of what I think he means by that to the person who prophesies. There are two, two really two options, and there's a lot written on this. But Shed, again, from a couple centuries ago, I think he gives you the, the two options, or the, the, the best options, and I think you could might maybe even combine them. One, the prophet must be true and sincere, commuting, com- communicating only what God has revealed to him. So in other words... When he stood up in a church service, or she did, because we know that there are women prophets in the church, too. That's another whole story. We won't go into that right now. But when he stood up, he was not to go beyond what God was revealing to him. He wasn't to say something saying, thus saith the Lord, when God really wasn't speaking through through him anymore. Uh, Like the false prophets in Jeremiah, uh, God says they speak a vision of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. So they weren't to do that. But the other thing is, I think that we don't want to quickly dismiss. A lot of people dismiss that idea of the analogy of faith. That's like, no, 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 that's not what it means. I don't think we ought to dismiss that too quickly. So Shedd says the individual prophecy must harmonize with that body of doctrine, the faith, which has come down from the beginnings. So if someone stood up and said he's prophesying in the early church and he says, thus saith the, the five gods, then immediately you'd know he's a false prophet because there's one God, three persons. So something like that. So anyway, that's how he was to do it. He was to stay within the boundaries of, of what was given and he was to not go beyond that. He was not to make things up as he went along. Okay, the next one. Uh, service says in the in the ESV, uh, it could be translated serving, ministering. It's where we get our word deacon, but he's not talking about the office here. You could translate it deaconing. It's a very broad term. In fact, it's so broad in First Corinthians twelve five, it describes a whole category of gifts, differences of ministries. Paul says there, and it's the word deaconing. There are differences of deaconings. Or servings or varieties of deaconings. So it's not possible to pin that one down precisely. And that's a good thing because that means there's all kinds of ways that you can serve God's people uh, that aren't mentioned in the Bible, but things that would line up with what would please God. And I think probably most Christians probably have this gift on some level. At least we know what to serve one another. And God would give us the grace to do that. Uh, Perhaps we can put it like this. It's the ability to help others in spiritual matters or in matters of any kind where help is needed. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul mentions the gift of helps or helping. And that has the idea that there's an eagerness, there's a, there's a concern for people, a desire to serve people. It's like Christ. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. 
And I've known people like that. I've learned from them through the years and from my early Christian days, some of my peers. I would see that I would watch them. And as soon as they saw someone needed help, whether it was an older person, they needed help getting into a chair or whatever, they were quick to do that. And I wasn't. It was not that I didn't care about them, but I thought this person is really alert to the needs of other people. And some people have that in a special way uh, they want to help. And so there's another gift. Uh, how do they use this gift? He says, use it to serve others. One commentary says there is a lot of lowly service to be done. And anyone who has the gift of doing it should rejoice at the wonder of divine grace. So when a little child comes to you after church and says, uh, Mr. Deacon or Mr. Elder, a toilet's plugged downstairs and running over. You don't call a committee meeting, right? You take care of it. Okay. now when you come to 7B, Paul switches from talking about the gift to the person with the gifts. It's a it's a minor thing, but you can see that. So he talks about teaching or the teacher. Let me give you a definition. It's the ability to instruct or train in doctrine. That is knowledge of biblical truth and skilled in helping others understand how to apply that knowledge in everyday life. And so come to spiritual maturity. Now, there are people who have that gift, but not all in the same measure. I know people that they know their Bible well, but I, I've watched them, and they are so much better, so much more practical than I am in coming up with ways. Well, you know, like my wife and I, we would counsel couples sometimes, and I'd be giving them the truth of, you know, what God says about this or that, but I would be struggling of a way to say how practically you should, and my wife would have it right out there. And I thought, why can't I think of that? It's because I don't have the gift on the level that she does. Uh, and that's the way it is. I mean, uh, if you have the gift of teaching, it will be more than just putting facts into people's heads. It will also lead to the so what? How do I implement this? How do I apply this in my life? The teacher is vitally concerned with that. He doesn't want to skip over the, the doctrine just to get to the so what. So it's just a how to thing. But he does want to get to that, so what? Exhorting, uh, verse 8. One mentor that I had, he, he gave this definition of exhorting. The divine gift for appealing for action and the active realization of the will of God. In other words, what he is saying there is this. As you look at another person and you see they understand truth, but they don't seem to apply it. He has a way of helping them to apply. Now, it's very close to the last one, I realize. And I don't know if you can make a big distinction there. It has to be based on. It's not just patting people on the back. It's not cheerleading. It's cheerleading based on scripture. And then the next gift, the gift that has been cynically said that nobody wants the gift of giving. Um, ESV has the one who contributes. So. Everybody's to be a giver, but some people, especially in not just money, but in many ways, they have this they have this ability, this desire God has given them to be very much a giving person. How is it to be done? Well, the text says uh, with liberality or generously or generosity with generosity or in generosity. The problem is there's another there's another use of that word. And so I, I confess before you, I don't know which way to take this, because it also can be translated with sincerity or with simplicity. 
So it's, it's uh, ambiguous here. I guess you could combine it. That's what Matthew Henry often does in his commentary. If you, I don't know if you read Matthew Henry very much, but you'll find when there's two views on something, he always tries to combine them. Um, that can be a good thing. But I think the idea is this. If you have that gift of giving, be generous about it, but be single-minded about it. In this sense, it means that you don't do it for the quid pro quo. You don't give so you can get something back. You don't go to the person and think, hey, you know what? I'd like to have a deck built this summer, and brother so-and-so is a carpenter. And maybe if I do something for him, then maybe he'll knock off on the bill a little bit. No, you don't do that. There's no strings attached whatsoever. And also, it obviously means if you're giving, you don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. So, as Shedd says, all ostentation and mercenary motive is excluded. The next gift is leading. Uh, In verse 8, the word means there to rule, to direct, to manage, to preside. And he's obviously talking about the leaders of the church, especially the elders. Um, So elders are given a special ability by God. Now, there'll be differences among the elders. Uh, There'll be certain emphases that certain elders have. But the elders know how to lead. Uh, And and by the way, I should have said this earlier, but with all these gifts, they need to be developed in each one of us. I mean, you don't just get the full blown thing. I mean, you have to work at it. Leaders become better as they lead. So it's that ability to to uh, administer the church and to to lead it in a way that's honoring to Christ. Um, How is it to be done? Well, here you go, elders. It's to be done with diligence. Uh, with zeal. It's the word diligence. Charles Hodge says the, the government of the church in correcting abuses, preventing disorders, and in the administration of discipline calls for constant vigilance and fidelity. Every elder knows that. You let things go just for a little while. You see a situation that should be dealt with. You don't jump on everything all the time, but as soon as things are getting, something's getting out of hand, if you don't deal with it, it almost, I learned this by hard experience myself. Wanting to escape troubles, they almost never heal themselves. They have to be dealt with, and it's not easy. So you have to do it with diligence. It also means, as Shed said, as Shed wrote, all perfunctory service is excluded. So the leadership has to be—they have to be prayerful. They have to say on those mornings when when church is coming and. They really don't want to be there. Emotionally, they're not there. They say, God, help me. I don't, I'm not up to this, but God, I go as an obedient servant of yours. Help me, Lord, to go with the right attitude and to carry out. Not, don't, help me not to go there and just go through the motions and act like an elder. Help me to be an elder and not to be perfunctory in what I do. 8D, showing mercy. The idea there of mercy is your heart's full of pity. And not just that, but you want to do something to help people. Uh, So you show mercy. It's looking at someone who's in a desperate situation, and you're the one who sees it, and you're the one who throws them a rope. Uh, One person defines it like this. It means to do acts of mercy. All Christians are to show or exercise mercy, but this is an unusual scale given. How is it to be done? With cheerfulness. In other words, not grudgingly. If you have that gift of mercy, lots. someone mentioned it this morning, something about this being a fallen world. There's trouble everywhere. Uh, 
Job 14.1, I think it is. There was an old man I used to visit uh, quite a bit. He was in his dying days. And every time he saw me, he'd say, oh, pastor, he says, I want to tell you. He says, man who was born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And he had lots of physical troubles as he was, as he was in his dying days. So not grudgingly. God loves a cheerful giver, and that doesn't apply just to money. He loves a cheerful giver. Morris says the word clearly points to something far from a grim determination to get through. Um, It points far more to than just getting through an unpleasant task. Mercy is not a grim duty, but a joy and a delight. In Christ, of course, he exempts such uh, a heart. John Murray said, oftentimes the work of mercy is disagreeable, and so it is liable to be done grudgingly and in a perfunctory manner. This attitude defeats the main purpose of ministry. In other words, when you're doing something, when you're helping someone who's in a mess, you don't want to be complaining to them about it. You don't want to be saying things to them like, you know, we've been in situations before, and this wasn't an act of mercy per se, but... You know, you're having lunch at, your, at their house, and they keep telling you how expensive the food was. You know, it's, it kind of just ruins it. You know what I mean? It's, I know that's getting into hospitality. You don't want to do that. You don't want to give off vibes to people that, you know, I'm helping you all right now, but, boy, you sure are inconveniencing me. Uh, it's very detectable uh, when you're on the receiving end of that kind of thing. Okay, that's a sampling of the gifts. Uh, and... The point, I believe, his big point in listing just these number of gifts right here is to say, look at the diversity. There's a big diversity. So what? Well, verse 6, we're coming to the end here. Use your gifts. You've got them. Use them. Now, if you look at verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. See those next four words. Let us use them. They're not in the original. They added those. It's what we call in grammar. You have it in English, too. It's called an ellipsis. You'd use them all, you use the ellipsis all the time, don't you, when you're texting. You say something and you don't want to finish it, so you go dot, dot, dot. That's an ellipsis. In other words, read between the lines, receiver of the text. You know, that's what it is. And that's what Paul's doing here. So it ought to be pretty obvious what he's saying. And I think that our English translations have done well. Let us use them. Um, Nasby says each of us is to exercise them accordingly. I mean, if Paul was a mainer, he could have said, let's get cracking. Let's get a move on. That's what he's saying. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you've believed in Jesus Christ and you're trusting him, when you trusted him, he empowered you and he's given you at least a gift if not more. In his generosity, it's often more than one gift. And you're to use that for the benefit of the body of Christ. Don't be a taker. Don't be a merely a taker. You have to learn to be a taker. Some people can't do that either. But don't be merely a taker. You come each week, and your, your, your whole purpose in coming is to get a boost and then get out of here. Don't be a mere taker. Don't be that person who's always looking to evade Work, responsibility in the church. It's hard work doing that. Um, Yes, I know it's true. You have to learn to say no at times. That's a big fault that some people have. 
They don't want people to be angry with them, so they say yes to everything, and then they get overburdened, and then they don't do anything. Well, then it becomes perfunctory. But on the other hand, don't forget how to say yes. Because if you say yes, you know, I've been doing that. I've been doing too many things, and I know someone recently that had to cut a whole bunch of things out of their ministry life. But on the other hand, they don't want to forget how to say, yes, I, I will do that. So there's a great diversity of gifts given to the church by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. They're to be employed. They're to be used for the benefit of, of the body of Christ, for the glory of God. Someone kind of alluded to this this morning in their prayer. Um, but what some of you might need to be doing today is to, as Paul says to Timothy, fan it back into a flame. Uh, rekindle it. Stir up the gift. That's the idea. Stir up the gift that is in you. Get going again. I close with this verse from the Apostle Peter. I think he summarizes it well. Maybe I could have just read this verse and said, that's the sermon. I'm sitting down. This is what Peter says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Amen.